we definitely go sideways on this podcast. Literally just tweeted about that with the sort of consensus that we came to last time we talked about that. Okay, it's a lab leak. What the fuck are you going to do about it? You know, are you going to hop in your boat with your bunch of goober-ass neckbeards and like go invade Wuhan? Shut the fuck up. I have so many questions about that. You are about to enter a nexus of science, violence, and nonsense. Where fake news, pseudoscience, and weaponized stupidity meet full contact fact-checking and peer-reviewed ass-kicking. And as always, no bullshit allowed. Recorded live at Hiroshito headquarters in Austin, Texas, this is the Art of Fighting BS podcast. Brain chips in the truth. Chocolate lines up planetarily with the sun. You are fake news. Come on, man. Science is interesting. If you don't agree, you can fuck off. Let's do this. All right. All right. So, Dante Bradley, I'm um, been a practicing attorney for over, gosh, 15 years now. And for the last four, I've been exclusively a licensed attorney. So, while I'm not necessarily a copyright expert, I am very well versed in licenses, which touches on this whole discussion very closely. So, I've been a Dungeons and Dragons player since, God, the 80s. I'm going to date myself here, but back when it was TSR right was the owner and by the way i i did some background digging on this just to make sure i wasn't missing anything yeah. could do a whole podcast on the the history of tsr it is, oh yeah you could it is wild <laughs> no we could talk about that a little too but yeah oh yeah wow okay so yeah just for the benefit of our knucklehead audience some of which just maybe even only know D&D from watching a couple episodes of Stranger Things or, or that kind of thing. Or, you know, having been familiarized with it through the satanic panic fallout of the oh. 80s and all that crap. So it just it's like, oh my God, it's going to turn your kids into little whatever the hell people are worried about, you know, throughout time. But uh, yeah, so we've got the Creative Commons OGL. So yeah, just to elaborate on some of the terms involved, I mean, you know, we're not going to go into FACO or anything, but that kind of stuff. Oh, gosh. FACO, two-hit armor class zero. Yeah. That was a math challenge to, to add negative numbers. Actually, that's probably why I can do that now. Intros. All right. So are you going to, do we need a formal intro row or are we just going to hit this up? Nah, well, I'll just, I'll play the noxiously long, you know, intro that we have when we do it. It's badass. Right. It's over right. the top epic. Yeah. Um, all right. Well, so, so as you know, Frost, in my other life, I actually get hired to design D&D supplements as a side <laughs> thing. That's um, awesome. Some of which Dante, who is a friend of mine here, knows. So I pulled him on for this one because Wizards of the Coast decided to shit the bed recently with their license. So anyone who's been around knows that D&D's actually gotten popular and out of the realm of nerddom. Right. So it's kind of gotten bigger and bigger lately. Role playing games like D&D have different editions over time and we can go back in the history later. But the important thing to know is that the second edition of D&D came out a while ago. And then when third edition came out, that was under a group called Wizards of the Coast. So they'd bought in this company, TSR, who had made D&D to begin with. They created something called the open gaming license during third edition which is, which we'll get into a bit when Dante jumps in and talks about licenses, but it basically allowed other people to create content using the D&D rules. So I could create a whole book of extra monsters or create my own world and sell it and not get and say, this works with D&D or it's a D&D supplement and not get sued, basically. Very high level. No, you weren't worried about being sued. 
And that led this third-party market get very big and fancy. Then D&D came out the fourth edition, which we don't speak about. It's somewhere between Bruno and Star Trek V. No one talks about it. It's terrible. It feels like World of Warcraft E, which is not what you want. If you want World of Warcraft, you go do that. But it wasn't subject to this OGL. And then fifth edition came out, and they simplified a lot of the rules from third edition, but also brought some of the old school flavor back, and they did a bunch of things. And basically a combination of appealing to the basic game that it used to be and new people. And it just took off. And about this time, Wizards was bought by Hasbro of, you know, toy fame. Yeah. So when this all happened, I mean, it just started going gangbusters. And they stopped releasing thousands and thousands of books, but started releasing lesser number of high-quality books. Streaming had taken off. So you got celebrities playing D&D. There was this thing called Critical Role, which was a bunch of voice actors playing D&D on YouTube, essentially, and Twitch and streaming it. And that got really big to the point now it has its own Amazon like cartoon with of their first sessions in it. And yep. different things, Acquisition Incorporated, all this stuff came out, all using D&D. So this third-party market exploded. Tons of money, right, coming in. And then Wizards got greedy. And I say Wizards and not Hasbro, because I don't know if this comes from Hasbro Brass or Wizards Brass. But Wizards was doing two things. One, they wanted to create a new version of D&D called probably 6th edition, but they're calling it 1D&D. It's really a revision to 5th versus a whole new set of rules. It's like the Xbox One, but for (laughs) naming conventions, they always go back. Yeah. And it's like not, it's not supposed to be that different. Anything's supposed to be backwards compatible. So that's not quite a new edition, which is like three to 3.5 or something. So it's like five and a half. It's there, updated, cleaned up, but not so fundamentally different. You wouldn't know it when you played it. And then they changed the OGL and said, hey, we're going to get rid of this old license. What we're going to do instead is if you make too much money, charge you a big fucking royalty for it. Revoke the old license, by the way. And if you ever made any IP under the old license, we now own that IP too and can use that whenever we want. And it's ours not yours. Now, and this is where I want Dante to jump in. The backlash just was epic. It's not clear how legal it was for them to do it, but just to give you a sense of how big of a fuck up this was, Star Wars had D&D rules. So they were trying to say they now own the IP to Star Wars, which you can imagine (laughs) what Disney would think about that if this ever actually went anywhere. But then people got really pissed. So before I jump into what then happened in the course of like hours, I don't know, Don, if you want to jump in on how open game licenses work, and then there's this thing called the SRD, which relates to that. Yeah. What the fuck Wizards was thinking, and was it even legal to begin with? Yeah, no problem. And I have a lot of opinions on this, and I think some of them are going to be super popular, but I'm just going to try to give you as best of an overview from a legal standpoint as I can. So there's going to be a lot of legal talk here. I am an attorney. I'm not your attorney. I'm not giving legal advice here. I'm just giving my legal opinion. But yeah, basic Dungeons and Dragons and with the open gaming license was a license. And they broke the, what they could, the offerings that they gave out to the public into two kind of categories, right? Game rules and product identity. Now, is that clear as mud or is it, nobody knows quite what that is, but there, there's a fine line between those two. But game rules are something like you roll a 20 sided dice. And if you're above a certain number, it's a success. And if you're below a certain number, it's a failure. That's just, first of all, it's not copyrightable at all. If you go, if you look at the copyright code, it's in the federal register. It says it's concepts, principles, methods of operations, procedures, 
those sorts of things cannot be copyrighted. Now, there's a reason for that. It's because copyright protection lasts a really long time. I think, what is it now? A hundred and some years plus the life of the author. It lasts a long time. If you invent- Long enough so that Mickey Mouse is in public domain, right? Is that how the- How that works. I think in the thirties, it's next decade, it's going to come out. Winnie the Pooh just came off, actually. That's why there's that movie, right? That's right. And you're going to start to see more and more of that. honey. I heard it and actually didn't do terrible for how much it costs, but yeah, you're going to start to see more of that come off. And that's a whole nother conversation. Like, is it the Mickey Mouse of today or is it the Mickey Mouse of the Steamboat Willie area, right? It's evolved. So, you know, Disney's going to fight tooth and nail to keep that under protection as long as possible. But yeah, copyright lasts a long time. Now, if you let invent a new game mechanic, you can patent that, right? And you can get patent protection on that, but patent protection only lasts for 20 years. So which is balancing test, right? Heavy duty protection, short amount of time, but copyright, which it lasts for a very long time, a century or more, they're not going to let you basically get a monopoly on math or dice rolling or anything. Yeah. But then there's the other concept of product identity. All right. And that's the stories that are written out of Dungeons and Dragons, these settings that the games take place in that are authored by, you know, different writers, the spells that are associated with the game, the monster descriptions of new monsters, right? So for instance, you can't copyright dragon, all right? Dungeons and dragons, right? But they can't say nobody else in the world can use a dragon. That's just, that's not a new novel idea, right? But the stat block for a blue and ancient blue dragon with its hit dice and challenge rating and saving throws and all that is product identity. And you can't just take that wholesale. And run with it, right? So there's always this question, does it fall under game mechanics? Does it fall under product identity? And you don't get any sort of license to take the product identity, that sweat and work and creativeness of people who have made all of this content and just wholesale take that and use it. But the D20 system, right, which Jason said, Star Wars uses, that's, you know, anybody can use that without any sort of license whatsoever. Is that, I hope that clears that up, but that's the old license, right? That's the old OGL, right? And they, and they, and so they basically gave away what they already couldn't protect. Right. It wasn't anything groundbreaking, right? If you, they had just said copyrighted on it, they would only be able to copyright the product identity. They wouldn't be able to claim protection on the rules and the mechanics themselves. And so then what about the SRD? Which the gets, SRD can copy it verbatim, and that's what's unique about it. Yeah, the SRD is what's a standard rule document, and it's it's five point one. And what that is, it's a really slimmed down version of the actual Dungeons and Dragons content. So if you start flipping through the SRD, by it's out on the internet. Anybody can get it. There's a link on Wizards of the Coast. It's about 400 pages of content that they just released that you don't have to buy. You can go out and see it right now. But if you start flipping through that, you'll notice right away that it does not contain a fraction of the content that's out there. For instance, in the Dungeons and Dragons, says one of its core rulebooks is the player's handbook, which goes through for players, how to make a character and what the different types of races are and different types of classes you can be in the SRD. For each type of character class, there's only one subclass available for each. If you buy the player's handbook, there's three or four 
per class. For instance, if you create a wizard under the player's handbook, I think there's eight schools that you can choose from. Under the SRD, there's just one. You're an evocation wizard if you're looking in just the SRD. So fucking fireball, man. That's it, right? That's all you're doing. There's also some of the content from the Dungeon Master's Guide, and there's some content from the Monster's Manual. So just from that, you could put together a campaign without buying anything. But it's a really limited wholesale. It's a limited amount of data. Now, at the top of the SRD, they put the open game license, which reiterated game content, feel free to use product identity, things like the Lich Vecna, which a lot of people might've become familiar with if they've watched Stranger Things. I watched it. Yeah. I heard about that. That's a bad guy in season four, right? The latest one. Season yeah. what it, five came out five. I don't know, seventeen, whatever. But yeah, that is a specific character that was written, and you could bet that Stranger Things had a license agreement with Wizards of the Coast to use that. The setting, the Forgotten Realms—that's product identity. And they say in the very beginning of this five point one SRD that you do not get a license to the product identity. You don't. You get game rules. Now, does that mean you can't use it at your table? Sure, you can use it at your table. You can make an adventure for your for groups, for your friends. But could you start writing content based on the Forgotten Realms books or Lance books or with the character Vecna on your own? No, you don't get a license to that. So that's the identity. That's product. Yeah. And you the just OGL give a mustache and OGL does not give <laughs> and the OGL does not give identity, right? No, it specifically excludes that. Right. In the license itself, it does. All right, so then let's talk about their botched role with this new thing. What the fuck did they do? So, besides shit the bed. Yeah, it, it turned out to be a pretty bad decision from a business standpoint. But what Wizards of the Coast, well, well they didn't announce it. From what I understand, it was leaked. So, and it was leaked because they were trying to give people, because of this royalty, a discount on royalty to certain businesses like Kickstarter. If anything went through Kickstarter and if in like a couple of the big press books like Mongoose or Kobolds or whatever. And so they got a special preview of it and said, look, we'll make your numbers lower. And that got leaked to the press. Well, I don't know. Is exactly what happened. I'll take your word for it. But yeah, it's been reported quite extensively and that they leaked it out to, I forget what journalist group had it. One of the gaming journalists then got it as a result of one of those companies, which they haven't disclosed leaking the contract because they were trying to maybe it was discount. an intentional leak that it's to test the waters. And maybe it's a good thing they did because it didn't end up working out. But what they said was, first of all, we're going to revoke the OGO 1.0 a, and we're going to put out a new open game license one, they're going to fall with 2.0 or, or B. And the first thing that a lot of people said was, well, you can't just revoke a license. Right. It's you gave it out. We bought your books. There was an exchange contract. We, we have this license. We can't just take it away from us once you've given it to us. And this is where I think I'm going to upset some people, but hopefully not too much. I think they probably were within their rights to, to do what they were doing. What about the, I, we now own your IP part of it. So, and again, here's where I'm going to maybe disagree with the majority here. Let me just put it this way. That's not that uncommon a provision in most license agreements. And here's why. When my companies that I represent release a new you know, version of their software and they sell it out to other customers, buy it, and their customers might come back with feedback 
or product, you know, suggestions for product enhancement. Well, wh- when they send out that license, it specifically says that, that sort of stuff, that feedback that, that you give us, those ideas for product enhancements, we're going to own that because if we go ahead and develop that, and then you try to claim that you are a joint author of that or somehow own that IP, it's going to make it impossible for us to keep updating. About the retroactive nature. Hey, I put this book out in this world called Pern, just to pick a fantasy world. Sure. Now, and I use D&D rules for it. Now you're telling me you own Pern. Yeah, that, okay, look, let me clarify. I think they had the right to do it. Now, there might have been a whole lot of defenses that could be raised, right? But from a pure licensing standpoint, that license was not irrevocable. Well, right, but it can be irrevocable. In that, so I would understand if they revoked it and said, going forward, anything you create, we would have. But anything that was created, that's my question. The back in time, anything that had been created, could they try to claim that by revoking the license? They could try to, but like I said, I think probably under the license, the language of the license itself, they could try to. I'm not going to say they could be successful because there's a lot of defenses that could be raised. You know, reliance. We made all of this content relying on the license that was in place. And that would probably be a fairly good defense to anything that was created up to the point of the car they changed the license so i think that anybody who tried to point that would have been successful but what i think happened was wizards of the coast saw that a lot of people over covid were making a lot of money like you said jason the popularity of dungeons and dragons exploded not only were they selling books but you were seeing websites come up that allowed people to play online over big you know great distances any time when they wanted you to have it What's the hardest challenge of playing Dungeons and Dragons, right? It's getting everybody together at one time. Like this yeah. podcast. Her <laughs> face. Yeah. You can just this way a month ago. Yeah. Six, six, you know, different people for four hours on a Saturday every other month. Uh, yeah. Know, adults it, with real jobs and shit. Yeah. But all of a sudden, you know, COVID hit online tools, Zoom, you know, popped up and there's other platforms of the world. 20 is a big one. Yeah, I've heard that in the industry rumor that I kind of listened to a little bit on the periphery that they wanted to tank Roll20 and replace it, make sure D&D Beyond was the only site for D&D-based play. I wouldn't be surprised. Big pushes of this whole thing. I wouldn't be surprised at all if that was, you know, talked about in the boardrooms. And then they went forward. But I think one of the biggest problem they made is they forgot who their audience was. Nerds. Nerds. Yeah, nerds. I mean, what is Dungeons and Dragons about? It's about reading rules and applying it to real, you know, situ- fantasy situations, right? It's about looking at every single word in a spell and trying to, you know, convince your dungeon master that it works in the best way possible. So they've yep. got catering to an audience that lives for parsing language. Litigious motherfuckers. Yes. And, and not only that, I mean... Like you said, it was a bad look, you know, to come and try to say anything that you create is ours in that type of setting. Well, it may work. Like if you went to a law firm and said, hey, write me a license, you know, they're going to put something like that in there. Yeah. But you have to know your audience. You have to know you're not selling this to businesses. You're selling this to consumers, people who want to want to make their own campaigns, who watch Shows like Critical Role and Stranger Things, and it really caused a backlash. Right. So, so to get to that, then, so 
this comes out, D&D Beyond, which is like their online tools for making characters, which is quite lucrative for them. Like people start canceling left and right. People are pulling out their every third party vendor who's created something's announcing they're going to band together and make their own OGL of rules based on a, rolling a D20. The biggest rival Pathfinder announces yeah. the orc, I think the open whatever rules consortium. The universe explodes in a week and then they come back and say, look, we really shit the bed. And over the course of about a week and a half of like, here's our new preview and then here's what we're going to do. And then they did it. They basically made a new version. They kept the first version of the OGL and they put that in the creative commons, in my understanding. And then they also have a new version of it that they dumped in along with the SRD into the commons. So can you talk about like the legal jujitsu they attempted to do? or did to attempt to mollify the masses? Well, they did it by what they said. They went on Twitter and said, whoops, sorry, our bad. Yeah. We messed up. I'm so sorry. They re-rolled a one. We fumbled it. We're going to fix it. And uh, what they did was they said, we're not going to touch the OGL. We're going to, you can keep using the SRD under the open game license, but we're also going to release it simultaneously. We're going to release it under the creative commons license. And here's what's interesting. And th this is really technical too. And they don't, there's some articles about that attempt to explain this, but if you want to publish content now, you have to pick one or the other. You can't just say, well, I'm under the OGL and the creative commons. You have to go with the OGL, you know, which we get the game rules, but not the product identity. Or you have to say, we're going to publish our content under the creative commons license. Now there's a lot of different creative commons licenses. The one that they are releasing is the international attribution 4.0, which means that if you're going to publish under that license, you have to give attribution to wizards of the coast. You have to say somewhere, this is based on the product, the IP owned by wizards of the coast based on by V. But here's the interesting creative commons does not distinguish between game rules and product identity. So it's a choice. If you want to go with the attribution route, everything in the five, the 5.1 SRD, technically fair game, even the product identity is in there. Because if you go under the creative commons license, it doesn't make that distinction. So. For hypothetical, let's say that I wanted to publish a book about our campaign setting, my postmodernist Marxist critical race theory based D&D campaign that I've been running, which would be the more advantageous license scheme to, to publish that under so that, you know, I keep, get to keep all the profit from that myself as a good postmodernist Marxist. It depends, but from what you're describing, it might be more advantageous to you to use the Creative Commons license. You write your own module, and at the bottom, you put an attribution to that is based on 5e. And at that point, you can sell it on the D&D Beyond Marketplace, or you can sell it on your own. But I just want to caution you. The Creative Commons license is not going to extend to the Player's Handbook. It's not going to extend to the Dungeon Master's Guide or any of the supplements. It's just to what's in that SRD, which I started off by saying is a really slimmed down version of the rules. So for instance, the, the orb of dragon time is an artifact that's listed in the SRD. 
there's an argument that you could take that description of that artifact and use that going forward in your works. Interestingly enough, uh, Strahd von Zarovich is mentioned in the SRD. Uh. So I don't know if that means you can just use the name. It's going to be an interesting to see if anybody tries to get around the rule because there's a whole module published about that one character. Sure. So how far does that license go if you use the Creative Commons because he's mentioned in the 5.1? I don't know. So we'll do you see. think they went too far the other way as a quick like CYA potentially? I don't know if they went too far the other way. I think that the SRD is pretty limited and what they've given out is not that much. Now, can you cite it? Can you say, for instance, you know, Strahd, see this book or this subclass, see this book. No rules. Hmm. You just give the name and cite it and say, go buy the player's handbook for this in your book saying, you know, whatever. Yeah, no, the, no, not really. It's not licensed in that way. Now, because there, there you don't have to have a citation. You don't have to have a citation to, or a license for something to cite it in your own work, generally speaking. Right, right. So, right. So, what I'm saying is like, in, you know, in my world, we have battle mages. To learn about battle mages, see Xanther's Guide. Yeah, I, I think that's probably okay. Because you're not putting any rules. You're not, just saying, see this not, book. You're not taking that and expanding on it. You know, you're just citing to where it came from. Yeah. Depending on the context, you might be okay there. It's likely not going to be a, a violation of their copyright. But just because you cite something doesn't necessarily mean that you get full license. Right, to right. Yeah, no, you can't be like cite and put the whole block of text yeah. in. Right. And by the way, this came from this book. So, so it's all good now. Yeah. All right. So, so what they didn't do though, was say, you know, what they're going to do in the future. One D and D. That's they, what I think's interesting. Yeah. I'm not sure. I think this was an interesting play by wizards they, because they seem to have capitulated and given, but I don't think they really gave that much. They gave out a limited rule set, which you can write, but what they also did is they're pushing to have, like you said, all their content published on what is it dm's guild which i think they own yeah or dnd beyond so which well, they own now they're right well, they're, they're trying to get rid of the other virtual tail tops like roll 20 they're trying to make dnd beyond with one dnd a bigger virtual tabletop i also wonder if they're going to have no ogl with one dnd hmm. like they did with fourth edition I mean, they might, but fourth edition's license was a little bit different. I don't want to get too yeah. off track. But that was under the game system license, which was pretty restrictive, but fourth edition was a disaster. And like you said, nobody really played it. So they might try to go forward with something like that. But I think that the catch out of the bag here, if you watched Critical Roast Roll show on Amazon, what was it? Vox. Vox yeah. Marvel. Legend of Vox Machina. It's yeah. actually pretty good. And it's I mean, hilarious. It's I love Scanlan's hand. Yeah, but that's exactly the reference I was. Do you think did, I, I didn't go back and watch it? But they did not use, say, Mage Hand. No, Scanlan's hand's Bigby's hand. Oh yeah, or Bigby's hand. They did not use Bigby's hands throughout there. They did not say a clerical blithead or whatever. They created their own world that everybody associated 
with Dungeons and Dragons, but never specifically used any content from any of the Wizards of the Coast books. They were very clever in that way. And yeah, I think too, but you know, what classes they're playing and that, but yeah, nobody, you know, you have the, the Druid and you have the Barbarian and you have the Ranger, but they never came out and said, right? yeah, they don't say Goliath either. They call, was it Grog a half giant or something? Right. Something like that. So, and I think that's what you're going to see a lot more of, right? People are going to release content that is, is not reliant upon that, but benefits from the goodwill that, that Dungeons and Dragons has generated over all these years. Do you think there's going to be, I mean, I've just seen a bevy of rival systems now oh, springing yeah. to, to, to like emphasize their license as being much better than any of the BS wizards owned by evil Hasbro is doing. Oh yeah. Why not? Why not take this opportunity to capitalize on that? Pathfinder, like you said, Pathfinder really jumped all over this. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Monty Cook. And so his system's doing the same thing. He's the one that did third edition. If you guys don't know who he is. Yeah. So his whole new system, well, not, it's not even that new emphasizes a license that it has. It's like, just use it. Say it's compatible. Cool. Yeah, so Pathfinder, we actually have one of the longtime Bullshito members actually runs the Pathfinder Discord. So he's, you know, he's always trying to get everyone in, into that. And I bought the Humble Bundle that came out a couple of weeks ago. And so oh, I got that too. And then everything, right? Yeah, well, I guess I haven't opened it yet because, I mean, whatever. So here's a copyright-ish kind of question. Like, let's say the actual D&D game, you know, is less, you know, I mean, everybody starts trying new systems and stuff. And then kind of like Xerox, everyone just starts calling, yeah, let's go play D&D. What kind of D&D you want to play? Let's play Pathfinder, you know, that oh. kind of thing. So uh, do you think D&D itself will just kind of lose their brand in a way? Or you can just refer to anything as Dungeons and Dragons as long as it's got Dungeons and Dragons in it? Yeah, I don't think they're going to go the way Xerox did, right? It became so generic in the vernacular that they, you're right, they lost their copyright. I think it's pretty iconic. It's been around for a long time, but I don't think anybody associates every game with D&D, right? So you've got, let me just take an example here. There's a lot of RPGs out there. Mass Effect was an RPG, epic RPG. Nobody saw that and said, oh, let's go play that D&D game, Mass Effect. It's yeah. it's too distinct, right? So, Yeah, I think okay. there's already the generic category of TTRPG or tabletop RPG. Yeah, but I mean, I'm just talking with normies, you know, kind of like down here in Texas, everybody calls every soda imaginable a Coke. It's like, you're going to go give me a Coke. It's like, what kind of Coke you want, Sprite? I, 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 maybe that's just a Texas thing, but it's, you know, it, that's just how it is. So, okay. Well, I was just hoping, I, I don't know, maybe, you know, because fuck those guys. I mean, Hasbro kind of ruined my childhood. He didn't ruin my childhood. My childhood was great in the context of the, all the Hasbro bullshit that I bought. It's just, it just kind of, you know, ruined my adulthood because I thought I was going to grow up and, you know, shoot blue lasers, the guys shooting red lasers and, you know, you know, fighting the a ruthless terrorist organization determined to world, rule the world. And then I just got Al Qaeda. So, you know, Hasbro, I'm, I've got a grudge against them anyway, and I hope to see them fail. Well, they also own Magic the Gathering, which I heard they botched that up pretty good too. Wizards does. And it's the Wizards unit, right? Yeah. Like, what are they doing with Magic now? I haven't heard, I haven't followed. I know they've been like trying to monetize the hell out of it. I don't know, but for, all I know is nobody's been happy with what they've been doing. 
Yeah, they're releasing, you know, old cards or selling them. I don't know. But yeah, it's a selling old cards thing I heard about. I thought the Forgotten Realms crossover was cool. I thought that they were doing a Warhammer crossover, which was nerdy and cool. But then I think they're also just like selling old cards out. Yeah. I guess when I think D and like so they shifted back, they ran away. You've been a lawyer in a boardroom. How do you roll a one on this? I mean, like, it doesn't take someone very, like, like it doesn't take the world's best team to understand who your audience is and not to shit in the pool. If I had to guess, look, they had a huge boom from 2016 on. Uh, the fifth edition was very popular, very accessible. Stranger Things made it, made it, made it mainstream, right? For people to say, oh, yeah, I, that's a game that I play. Or that's what I used to yeah. play. Maybe we'll pick it up again. And then, when, like I said, when COVID hit, it just made it the whole D&D Beyond took off and it made it so much easier for people to, accessible for people. And and that's when the podcasts started coming up, right? Critical role in the shows and a lot of people started writing content. And I think the boardroom just said, I think we're leaving too much meat on that bone. Let's go get it. And like like you probably heard, Pigs get fat, hogs get slaughtered, right? And instead of just riding the goodwill, and they decided to get a little too greedy. And it was a, it wasn't a good look, right? The whole ownership of we're just going to own your content that you create, like you said, that's people put their heart and soul. In. And some companies were based off of it. Yeah, whole companies. Well, um, to defend Hasbro on this, you know, they as a publicly traded company, you do have a fiduciary responsibility. To, and for people listening on the podcast, I'm making a shake weight motion right here because I, I can't even finish this sentence without vomiting. But so I'm just going to stop talking because it's fuck. But here's the thing. Their fiduciary responsibility and they rolled a one. They pissed off their audience and lost a whole bunch of money on D&D Beyond and empowered all their rivals. Yeah. So who should get fired over this and what's their name and what's their email address? <laughs> yeah. I, I bet you who the lawyer that wrote this and someone in management no longer is in management. If I had to guess, they probably just sent the license out to a law firm and said, hey, tighten this up, make it good. And whatever lawyer's desk this ended up in front of never had played Dungeons and Dragons in their life. And they just said, oh, I'm just going to make this the best I can. And uh, yeah, they, they didn't I, know their audience. Yeah. See, if it was me, I suspect the person, whoever at Hasbro, who designed and turned all the Transformers into animals back in the 90s. Well, that uh, was good. What the fuck? I mean, Optimus that Prime's was the, a goddamn three D animated TV shows. It was so good. The gorilla, Chicks loved that. That was a huge hit. I love that. That was great. Tuned in for, from a freaking Peterbilt into a gorilla. I yeah. Mean, Sometimes what? you want a gorilla with lace. Oh, Beast Wars was amazing. That was yeah. a great move. Have Maybe you seen uh, Beast Machines afterwards? Like the unsung anime with even better animation that like lists lasted a season and a half or whatever God. i dropped off after rodimus prime's bullshit so i mean maybe that's dating myself but fucking and then you know they brought optimus back as rodimus was such a freaking little beta cuck of a prime so still matter hasbro the good news is if you are a content creator it, this actually worked out in your favor right now, now you can go into the creative commons, you can give attribution and it it opened that door to being able to publish content without having to worry about product identity or game mechanics. Good. So that, that did make it a lot easier. 
Yeah. Good. So y'all can look forward to my, my, my campaign where all the lower races on the world overthrow the privileged elite, you know, high elves and, and take control of the means of production. So well, bourgeoisie and proletariat. Yeah. And you know, they're not going to be subjected to the systemic oppression. So it's critical it's D&D done. race theory. It's never yeah. been done. So unique. <laughs> yeah, no. D&D with marks. Yeah. All right. Well, that was the D&D primer. You also brought up something else in the pre-run of this about the, the Department of Energy. I don't know, Frost, you want to jump in on this one? What they announced? Oh, yeah. Lab leak. The hot news story among very highly specialized weirdos on the internet. I mean, a lot of people are just, you know, cursory interest. And okay, yeah, I mean, I would like to know if it was just a screw up or if it was deliberate mal- malfeasance on the part of the Chinese or if it was a, I don't know, a quasi sort of oopsie uh, here you go world shit but i mean i like i said before i delve too far into it i just you know i mean what the fuck are you gonna do about it either way i right, mean right. you're not this is why i was reminding you we went on record god i don't even know how long ago a year plus ago two years ago at this point about yeah. this that like does it matter and so let me phrase if it was an engineered virus specifically designed it would matter we pretty much know it wasn't yes Regardless of it was a natural virus found in a cave somewhere and put in a lab and then studied and passaged and whatever normally and then leaked, right? Or if it just, you know, showed up in a meat market somewhere. Yeah. Right. So either way, they came from nature, right? Cool. They weren't deliberately the target of engineering. Okay. So does it matter if it came from nature or a person or a lab? Only in so much as that we should be better about learning from our mistakes with lab safety. Sure. Are we ever going to know? No, because China's never going to tell us if they have the evidence or give it to us. Right? Because they don't want that on their (laughs) record. Yeah. No, because I mean, the entire culture is about saving face. So yeah, they're not going to do 180 and be like, oopsie. Right. So they're never going to tell us. And what you're going to do about it? And yeah. it doesn't change any of the downstream effects, actions you had to do. So has it always been on the table? Yes. No. Why the Department of Energy put out a report about this? Like, I we haven't seen the report, right? This is a secondhand news article reporting the outcome of this that was leaked or something. I don't know why they're assessing it and what lens they're putting in and what evidence they're using to make their conclusions. So I still go, is it possible? Yes. Is it likely? I don't know. I can do anything. Some, no. Let me ask you, does it make a difference if that lab got NIH funding though? In what way? So it would, it goes along with lessons learned, right? If you're getting NIH funding and you are dealing with BSL three or four organisms, so that's biosafety level three or four, the scary shit. You should probably have some form of safety audit every few years, right? The FDA does that for drug manufacturing. They should probably do safety audits of all labs. They don't care if you're in the U.S. or not, right? If you receive NIH funding, with that comes a safety audit. Because that's a good way to control for scientists sometimes lackadaisical behavior about this because humans get compliant, right? Because the institution clearly didn't do it. But the whole point is to have a third party 
Ooh, you want my money? Guess what? I'm going to audit you. That's what I would view it as a lesson learned, right? But I don't think it's, I don't think it's dependent on if it's a leak or not. I think it's probably just generally a good idea that if the NIH or the federal government in some form, right, gives a research lab money to research BSL three and four, you should have a safety audit of that protocols. Yeah. When you said every few years, that scared me. I would hope it'd be way more frequent. Every two. That's typically what you do. Two? Wow. Yeah, every other. Well, so the grant's five years, right? So you have your initial, your third year, and your five year. I just, I think the most important thing is, I mean, that sounds all reasonable, but how do I connect the dots between a possible lab leak and us get, how do I take that to get to the point where we execute Fauci for being a traitor and making, giving us conflicting information about wearing masks, man? I wanted to, I just want my face to be seen. I want to, I can't lick windows if I'm wearing a this is what's so frustrating. So he gave conflicting information because it changed, but then I don't understand what's happened with the government in terms of what they're doing now either, right? Masks don't work. They have a ton of data that they like fundamentally do not work currently. They worked in the beginning, probably because the original version of SARS-CoV-2 was a lower respiratory infection, like down deep in your lungs, right? not an upper respiratory infection. Most most upper respiratory infections are things like the common cold, where there's a ton of it up in your nose and your mouth and everywhere else, and you spew it everywhere. Well, masks versus lower respiratory droplets, okay? If a mask can block, make up a number. This is probably really high, 90% of the particles. And you're spewing out 10,000 particles that means that what you end up spewing out past the mask is 1,000. Let's say the infectious dose is 10,000. You're not infected unless you just like spend a ton of time. I'm not doing time averaging, but just keep it simple here, okay? Now, take something like Omicron where it spews out a million because it's an upper respiratory, right? It makes more, makes you less sick, and it's higher up. Well, now, 10% of a million, the leftover is 100,000. That's bigger than 10,000 you're going to get sick. This is now why masks don't work. Okay. Yeah. But in the world of people who live on hot pockets and beer, what they're hearing you say when you say that is masks don't work. Masks never worked. And I was lied to by the government because bad. Well, so here's the problem though. They are, if the government came out and said, you know, it has changed. Masks are no longer shown to be effective. All they've done is say, we no longer recommend routine masking, but there's all this stuff from the CDC and the FDA still pushing masking sometime and pushing extra boosters and all this stuff without a lot of data. So is there over time, the, you know, the paranoid people who are being like, oh, you know, the government's lying to us and pushing things they shouldn't, they're becoming less and less wrong because the government's now way over its skis in terms of data. Like there is no data to support anything beyond the third vaccine dose. There is zero data to show that the bivalent vaccine prevents anything. We can assume that it works just like the original vaccine and prevents serious illness and death through three doses. There's pretty good arguments based on what we know about antigens and vaccines generally and moving along, right? Like, and so if you have the up version model, why vaccinate against something that doesn't exist anymore? right? There's no original COVID left anymore. It's extinct. Only 
only the new Omicron, right? So if you move down the line, okay, makes good sense. If I've never been vaccinated before, what's on the market? Use the bivalent. It's the upgraded version, right? Just like you don't use last year's flu vaccine. Different analogy, but same point, right? If it's mutated, move on. But there's no evidence to say a fourth or fifth or sixth has any effect outside of ultra rare populations who are immunosuppressed. Yeah. And this is, but this is conversation among people that, you know, can at least read an abstract and think a P value is something that doesn't have anything to do with urine and just yeah. are, have been to at least a class or two. Well, right. Higher but, education. But the problem is that then the government's still saying, you know, be safe, get your booster. See the point in that. It just erodes, it erodes the, it erodes my ability to say, yeah, listen to the CDC. They're doing the right thing. It makes it harder. Yes. But don't you think that on some, and I'm not be arguing on behalf of the government because now I'm, I sound like a shill yeah. and that's not, that's absolutely not the point that place that we take in the world, but just, and it's like a paternalistic kind of thing. If you're talking to children who just think in terms of black or white. But you can just yeah. say you're three and done, right? Because every other vaccine besides the flu shot, you take a certain number and you're done, right? There's a, yeah. there's a thing and you stop. Yep. And, and you, you have to steer that. the ship though. You got a ship full of all these people that are like, yeah, you know, public health people aren't and done. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So, we I mean, but you, how are you going to coordinate the message to get that out to, and in a way that the people will trust you and then still mitigate as much of COVID as you can, because people are still dying from it. Yeah, you're never going to not die from it anymore. Congratulations. The world, the day COVID came out, became more dangerous than the day before. All right. I mean, I, I, that's just what happened. And we then made I it agree with less you. dangerous than it first was when we got vaccines. I'm just looking at it from a, I mean, you're, you've completely decoupled from the reality of the, the actual science, the hard science. And I'm thinking of the psych, the mass psychology of it, the social psychology of steering a whole population not so step, to implode. Yeah. Step one, the world's more dangerous. You have to acknowledge the state of the world. You're never going to do anything to fix it and drive it down to zero because driving down yeah. to zero makes you do crazy things like driving risk down to zero. You, you can't. There's no such thing as right, zero Right, but that's risk. what people try China to do. China learned that. Right, but that's what people try to do. So, okay, can't drive it down to zero. How do you mitigate the risk? Well, if you're sick, stay home. Get your vaccines up to the limit that the data provides. Now, if you come out with new data that says the fourth one works, get a fourth one, right? Just get clinical trial data. That's it. What else can we do? Well, the masks don't seem to work. I get healthcare workers should wear N95s that are fit tested. That's a big difference. There's medications that can make you less sick. So use those. I'll wash your goddamn hands. You filthy, filthy humans. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, when policymakers are trying to make health decisions in pandemics. Oh, early on. I don't think they have the luxury of waiting for the data, right? I'm not talking about early on. I'm talking about now. Well, what's, yeah. It, it, are you saying that the data shows no benefit or they just don't have the data yet? No, I'm saying the data shows no benefit for math. Then they need to, the policymakers need to follow the data. Right. Not only no math, not only for two studies for COVID, like five other studies for other respiratory viruses, they don't work. But guess what? The surgical masks are designed not the N95s fit tested. Mind you, people wearing N95s, I don't count them because they're, don't, they're not wearing them fitted. They work like a regular mask, okay? But, if, but the surgical masks we all wear, those are designed to prevent you from spewing bacteria into the bo open body of someone you're doing surgery on. That's gross. Right. 
Like I get to forget what you're saying. Right. But that's what they're for, right? They block bacteria and they block big droplets. Okay. They don't block respiratory viruses. The filter that they put on the air supply for an intubated patient who is undergoing surgery, that blocks respiratory viruses. It makes sense. But we tried it because we thought COVID was droplet originally, but then it turned out to be airborne. So masks did work. They rolled a one. I mean, they, but they could have worked on the first version. No, yeah, they maybe rolled one, or maybe the rules changed from first edition to second edition, right? <laughs> Which is really what happened, right? The old, the original one, maybe the partial effect of something over your face limited it in something that didn't spread that well. Right. But the virus evolved. Similarly, vaccines, phenomenal. Right. And then when they first came out, we thought they were going to prevent against transmission, but the virus mutated. So they don't really prevent against transmission at all. They still prevent you from dying. Right. right. Now COVID's less deadly. And so getting Omicron versus getting the vaccine is going to suck a lot less. If you're old, definitely get the vaccine. But if you're young, Getting Omicron versus the vaccine, it's not as big of a difference as it was with the original strain, right? The risks, right? Because the new virus is less deadly. Now, public health, get your shots, get your vaccine, get your second one, because that's the course, right? Two, and then get your booster six months to a year later. Great. If you want to tell me I should get an annual booster, you have to provide phase three clinical data showing that a booster is useful. Why? Because the vaccines have a non-zero risk. There's rare risks of strokes, rare risks of heart inflammation, especially in young men. And I have no known benefit, right? When you had death, those risks were really small. So it was really easy to sell the vaccine, right? But you can't say, go get a shot every year without data showing it, which is why the most recent vaccines didn't get unanimous approval from the advisory committee for the FDA. Because people like Paul Offit are being smart and saying, like, give me the data on this. But Pfizer doesn't want to think that they're going to. No, Pfizer we work in healthcare, right? Right. Well, because Pfizer doesn't want to spend the 10, you know, the $50 million to do it. They just want to sell another vaccine and the FDA's doing it for them. Okay. Yeah. I'm just imagining the, the annual flu shot is going to be flu plus COVID. They can't put them together. Excuse me, they won't have only formulations that are together. They'll always have split ones for a variety of reasons. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, we're mandated to take whatever the hell they yeah, give us, you know. I know. Fun times. Yeah. The, the flu shot even, the flu shot has never been shown to prevent death from the flu. Okay. It's been shown to prevent serious illness from the flu, or actually, the number one thing it's been shown to prevent is days of lost work. Okay. Hey, Dante, as a lawyer, why do you think days of lost work is a valuable metric in industry? Does it affect the bottom line? Correct. So the flu shot is probably a jobs program. Now, does that mean it's bad? No, no one wants to be flipping sick. If it prevents me from being sick enough to take time off of work, if doing something, but it doesn't meet the highest bar of it prevents you from dying of the flu. Because basically, if you're sick enough to die from the flu, from that, it's not going to help. It's not going to put you over the edge one way or the other, right? The, its effect window's over here, not over there. 
as far as so, to work. So what you're saying is it would be a good idea to give people all kinds of shots that prevent days off work. Like maybe like the depot shot for women would, that would prevent like a long time off of work if companies required, you know, the, that now that sounds very, I don't know what society is that handsmaid's tale. No. Yeah, the opposite of Handmaid's Tale, I think. It's a little eugenics-y, I guess, you know? Uh, I don't, it's dystopian for sure. I, oh, yeah, I don't think there's a fair. genre that's done that, right? It's like, you know, no, we need you here. So your slate of vaccines for the year is going to include a, you know, birth control. So, yeah. That, that yeah, there, there's your next Amer great American novel. Yeah. Rosco. I'll call it the Horner game. I don't know. I'm just... I'm spitballing here. It's just that's terrible. All right. You, yeah, it's, it's bad. You, you this is to, why I don't publish hire, books. You have to hire a consultant for the names for your things. <laughs> yeah, I do. I do think legally, like to get the original thing. If you're going to have a lab leak, there's a lot of not legal implications, but best practices, right? And this is what people are concerned about because there's all types of shit that like labs shouldn't be doing that some scientist thinks you should, and you got to have someone else looking in on them because academia is not very well regulated. And what about academia in China? Is that, you think that more scrupulous about sort certain practices and I'm totally joking because I know plagiarism is like rife over there. It's just, it's a, no, I don't, I just think that like. The academic environment's designed not to have a lot of rules, and that's actually fine, right? Rules can inhibit productivity. I'm not going to say that you want tons of rules about everything. Doing industry science now compared to academic science is much slower in, yeah. in some ways, right? And not at the R&D phase, but like at the manufacturing phase, doing research is more difficult because you have to pre-write out everything you're going to do. I will say it's weird if we are funding labs overseas, you know, not that yeah, I think we have, I mean, it's weird to send American money to our biggest international rival and have them working on things. It's just, I mean, I get international relations to an extent, but that's it's, just well, kind of, not, so let me give you a different example. There is a lab in the U S that studies on a pick a disease. I know a little bit about African sleeping sickness. And so they're going to make a grant and this grant involves medicinal chemistry in the U S in five clinics in Africa with money to those clinics to do studies on it with those researchers. And they're going to do some basic research there that you can do in the field that's better to do in the field than shipping the shit back. Okay. All right. So that makes more sense. I get now, that. That, that now, would be now, a reason now, why. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to upscale it to Wuhan. All yep. the coronaviruses live in bat caves in China. They don't, but like a lot of them do. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to have a lab there, collect them and study what they do there. Cause I don't want to transport that shit to the U S but I'm trying to understand coronavirus pathology. Cause I view it as an, as a international threat. And so I'm going to have my American coronavirus experts work with this lab here. Who's collecting the samples and doing some basic studies on them and freezing them as a giant biobank. And I don't want to ship it to the U S. So for the benefit of the people that are, you know, just on the periphery of this, explain gain of function research and whether or not that was going on. All right. So there's different ways to define it. The traditional main way of gain of gain of function research is adding something to a virus to enhance its capabilities. 
So the scariest way is you just mutate it in. Because at this point, we can basically edit DNA like you can edit code on a computer. Yeah, Cas9, right? crap. Yeah, yes, CRISPR-Cas9 technology and just plasmids for viruses and stuff. But yeah, you can just... So if I gain a function, I want to take this gene, I think, make stuff infect human cells, and I want to put it in this hemorrhagic rabbit virus, and I want to see if I can make it infect human cells because I'm trying to figure out if this gene lets me do that. So I put the gene in. Oh, look, my virus now infects these human cells in the petri dish. That's gain of function. If that thing ever gets the fuck out, you have a problem. Yeah, like, you know, getting extra virus points in pandemic, the game. You know, yes. You can just make it airborne. Exactly. The other way to do it is you just expose the hemorrhagic rabbit virus to human cells, all types of human cells over and over again until one of them mutates and infects it where you co-culture it with rabbit cells and human cells so that it can live in the rabbit cells and keep propagating and making errors and mutating. And eventually you get one that infects the human cells and you wait for the human cells to change color when they're infected. And then, you know, you got a hit. Yeah. Is there a point to doing that in this spirit and the, well, for the purpose of combating a possible virus, like a pandemic, future pandemic. So is that just tough? You can think of reasons to want to know why a gene is important for the function of a virus or not, right? I, this lets me infect human cells. Okay, well, if it's the gene that can infect human cells, then you can create a drug to block it, and then it can't infect human cells. So you have to have a reason you think it's important to begin with. But how do you test it? Well, ideally, you take a virus that has it that is known to infect human cells, you mutate it out and show that it can't anymore. But then typically you always want to do some science in two ways to really show that something works, right? And so then the normal thing you do, not for this inspection, but normally I think this gene is important X. I knock it out, X is screwed up. Cool. I take these other cells or the knockout and re-express the gene or in another cell, add the gene in and see the opposite effect happen. That tells me in two ways something's happening. Yeah. Right? This is where the bad gain of function research happens. I think it's bad, important for infecting. So I'm going to take it as something that can't infect and do it, and now it infects. Now, if you take a virus that's innocuous and do this, that's not as stupid, right? Look, I took the virus. I took this basic virus that's not a threat. Now it can infect these human cells. It's still not a threat, but I show my proof. Now I burned it. I can see in some very controlled situations where you'd want to do that. I don't see why you'd want to do that on a virus that's already dangerous. Okay. I can so, see why people get curious, right? Scientists get curious. Like, man, what could I do to make the flu worse? What could be the worst flu that could happen? Let me go test that. Please don't. Yeah, and they're not always the most, you know, socially gifted people that would stop and think, hey, you know, maybe I shouldn't do this. Maybe this would be bad. Maybe people would be angry at me if I did this. You know, there's just no, like, hyper fixated on, they're just wow. It's not the problem. Yeah. You know, as the saying goes, autism causes vaccines. But that's the gain of function. So, but you, so you can do it just by passaging. Yeah. Do I think the Wuhan strains have that? I mean, there's very mild evidence that it looks like it had been like exposed to human cells and that's how it moved over. 
But that could also just be accident, right? Like you try to propagate viruses in human cells as like a writ large. And so if it's already doing it, it's doing it. Yeah. It doesn't look like it has site-directed mutagenesis though. That they All the analysis that indicate that are pretty bad. Okay. Well, that's good. This is like a good mini update on the status of things. We like, kind of... Yeah, the pandemic today is going to be the pan same pandemic it is in a year from now at this point. We've reached steady state. We're done. Yeah. It's when I put my lawyer hat on though, and if somebody could show gain of function, what led to an enhanced coronavirus, which ended up released. The lawyer in me says, let's talk about negligence. Sure. And then that source of funding becomes critical, right? Who's responsible for a worldwide pandemic that killed, you know, how many millions of people? Well, so the grant did just not provide. A, if it just came from a cave bat and it was, you know, that's one thing, but if it came from a laboratory where they were performing these audits or whatever it might be. Well, there are no audits requirement currently. <laughs> Lovely. And oh. the lab was not authorized. So if the lab went and did gain of function research, that was not what was in the grant. I've seen the grant. Well, even if they were, if there was a lab leak, yes, that puts the responsibility on people, governments, corporations. Well, mostly just the Chinese government, the American government. Yeah. So I think that there's, you know, purpose behind these questions that, that people are asking. At least, yeah. But how do you sue the American government for then distributing all the vaccine for it for free, and then funding all of the results of it? I mean, there's a certain level of you want to be able to have a system where you can go out into the wild and get viruses and surveil them and understand what they are without complete fear of lawsuit. Now, could there have been negligence in this case? Absolutely. That would then be the Chinese government or the Chinese lab workers negligence, right? Not we funded them to help us work on viruses that are of international importance where they're, where they are not transporting them, right? That was actually the responsible thing to do, right? Not ship it. Right. And do the basic work there. Cause you can always make the virus later at, you can just synthesize viruses if you want to. No, it makes sense that if you're going to study coronaviruses, study them in the world center of where they come from. Right. Yes. Right. So I don't have a problem with the funding part. Now, if they were funding something, they should have. That's a whole other story. But my understanding, have you read chunks of this grant, is that it was just like collect and catalog and study their function in the native cells they infect type of thing. So... It'd be, be a leak accident, which can be negligent or non-negligent, right? So, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Right. And that doesn't, I don't think, in my mind, implicate the U.S. government. No, I'm not saying it implicates the U.S. government. It definitely infects China's government. But what you're going to do, sue China? Yeah, good luck. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, can you? I mean, can, can do international lawsuits even work? You know, they've sued Al-Qaeda successfully. It's just a question of getting the money. You can sue anybody for anything. Well, yeah. So you could sue China in an American court for like one trillion dollars, and China's like going to give us a giant middle finger. Out a way to do this, yeah. And China, with their one trillion dollars, erects a giant middle finger as a jobs program that could be seen from space station. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. It's just, I mean, there's so many overlapping <laughs> circles of interest and shady bullshit that go on the lab leak fans side of things because i mean honestly there are 
two opposing groups that are like super amped up. No, it was. Yes, it wasn't. Blah, 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 blah. And so it's easier to come down on the side of the people that are like, yeah, no, it's probably not a lab leak. It was, I mean, zoonotic. It just, it's more reasonable than, than the other side, which is, I mean, just they have all that baggage. It's in a phobia. They just hate, they hate China or they hate Fauci. Or They're just looking for somebody to demonize and blame because the real world is terrifying that shit can just randomly happen and millions of people can die. And so, no, there has to be somebody to blame because if there's not, oh my God, what are we even doing here? Why? I need an adult. So. Yeah. All right. I think we covered most everything, right? Yeah.